morning church our scripture reading before the lesson this morning will be from acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40 now an angel of the lord said to philip rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from jerusalem to gaza this is a desert place and he rose and went and there was an ethiopian a eunuch a court official of candace queen of the ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his, humili in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he, ho he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing the sea. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, good morning. I realized last week I forgot to tell you all that in the foyer, uh, next to the bulletin on the table, uh, I've been putting together a half sheet of paper that on the back has an outline that you can follow along with the sermon. Um, it's got some sentences that have some blanks that are left there that you could fill in. Um, this is still a work in progress. Uh, I'm learning how to do this better for you. So if you're a person that learns by taking some notes, uh, these are available. And your honest feedback to me about how it's going would really help me improve this product. So uh, if you could let me know, because uh, sometimes I put sentences on there and then I don't actually say the sentence that's on here. Um, and then when people ask me, like uh, last week, someone asked me, um, well, what did this one mean? I had to, I don't know. I don't know what, that, what the answer to that sentence is. I need to go look. So, so your feedback will, will greatly help me make that better for those of you that um, do like to take notes when you're, when you're listening. It's just, a, just something to help. So, okay. We are in Acts chapter 8. We're going to finish Acts 8 today. And we are studying the book of Acts for two reasons. Two reasons. One is that it's very descriptive of how God, through his powerful work, began this church that you and I are now, 2,000 years later, a part of. You watch the movement of God through Jesus Christ and his apostles go in Acts chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28. There's this amazing thing that you can watch, and God is laying out for us in the book of Acts this great description of who he is and what he does and how the church is supposed to operate. And so we can read and study the book of Acts and walk away sort of in awe of who God is, who Christ is, his mission, 
and how he accomplishes it. But we're not studying the book of Acts just to see how God works, although that's a vitally important thing to do. I believe the book of Acts is not just descriptive, telling us what God has done, but it's also very much prescriptive. That meaning we can draw out principles from the book of Acts that teach us actually how to be the church that, that we see in the original first century in the book of Acts. It's one of the great sort of appeals of the restoration movement that our uh, church family is a part of. One of the great appeals is that we become like the church we see in the New Testament. And so we are studying the book of Acts both descriptively to be in awe of how God works, but also in great anticipation, prescriptively, meaning we believe this is how God continues to work in our lives, that he continues to uh, spread the gospel through his body of believers. And so today we're going to see uh, a principle drawn out from this text. What we're going to see in this story is one of the most unlikely characters in history become one of the first Christians. What we're going to see today is an unexpected conversion. And we want to teach this not just to be in awe of the fact that God saved some people in the past that were kind of unexpected, but to refresh our hope, to reinvigorate our faith, to believe that God still even today can reach unexpected people with the gospel. Now, more and more progressively in our culture, I think we're finding a, a mindset and a people who are unex, who we would consider to be unexpected converts to Jesus Christ. And so the mission to the unexpected is what we're going to talk about today because it, it should be actually something that we do expect. Because unexpected things is the very nature of the kingdom that you and I are now a part of. When God sent Jesus Christ, he showed up and he said, mountains will be brought low, valleys will be filled, um, the desert will be made to flourish, meaning like unexpected things are going to happen. Unexpected converts, let me clarify this and we'll get into it, are the ones that you and I consider to be outsiders, long shots to actually become a Christian. So this morning, let's ask three really simple questions together, okay? Number one, who are the unexpected? Who, who are they? Let's look at this story. Let's see some of the characteristics that play out between Philip and this eunuch and see what, what makes up a person who's unexpected. Number two, let's ask this question. Where are they? How do we go from here to connecting to people that actually are unexpected converts? How are we going to cross paths with these people and try to convert them with the gospel? And number three, we'll ask, what are we to do when we bump into somebody who's unexpected? What do you do? You know, if, if, if by nature, if they're unexpected converts um, and unexpected people with the gospel, what are we supposed to do when we run into these people and engage with them? So let's answer those three questions, looking at Philip and the eunuch, and I hope that you'll be blessed this morning. Number one, who are these people that are unexpected? Now, let me point out and say this, first of all, that there isn't a particular just one group of people that are insiders and one group of people that are outsiders there isn't a, a particular group of people that are the expected and then another group of people that are the unexpected when i say the unexpected convert or those that are outsiders or those that are unexpected when i say that what i'm talking about is from your perspective the unexpected 
those of you, those that are totally different from you in many different ways. When you look at the story of Philip and the eunuch, the eunuch was unexpected, not just because he was Ethiopian or a eunuch or part of the court of Candace. He was unexpected in relation to who Philip was. Now, let me walk you through this. First of all, he was unexpected racially. Philip was a Jew, right? He was in Jerusalem. Uh, he was part of, the, uh, he was part of the, the, the covenant of Moses, converted to Christ. And in Jerusalem, he was part of the church. He was there comfortable in his hometown. And the persecu- persecution of the church drove Philip out into the city of Samaria, this massive city. And he began to preach the gospel and people were converted. But then he walks down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And there he runs into an Ethiopian who was totally different racially than him, looked differently than him. This man was different race of a different nation. He physically looked different than Philip. So racial differences is one of the very first places that we see unexpected conversions. Now, I believe this is incredibly timely for us to think about in the culture in which we live today because racial tensions are, at a, are reaching high levels in our culture. Would, I, would you all agree with that? That uh, racial, racial tension right now is continuing to increase. And one of the most unfortunate, disheartening things we see is that a particular group of people, whichever group it is, whichever side you're on in the race discussion, is so often judging the other group based upon their worst performers. And out of that, tensions are rising. When in the most, when in reality, uh, between these two groups of people, whatever groups you might be considering, whatever races that we see in tension, a vast majority of those groups oftentimes find uh, that they're not as extreme as the, as the outliers. But we highlight the one or the two that are the extremes. And those of us that are in whatever group you're in, if you find yourself, if you're white, if you're black, if you're Latino, whatever group you're in, the opposite group, so often we look at the worst offenders of those groups and judge the whole group. And that makes that group become an outsider to us and unexpected to us. Different races become outsiders and unexpected when we lose hope that the gospel could change that person's life. So whatever group you're in right now, we're all in a racial group, every one of us. Whatever group you're in, when you lose hope that the gospel can change the lives of people in different groups than you, Racial tension continues to increase, and those people become more and more unexpected outsiders to us. When Philip ran into the eunuch and noticed, he knew he was Ethiopian, not by the way he talked, not even by the kind of chariot he was driving. He knew he was an Ethiopian because he looked at him and saw somebody different. But he still presented the gospel to him. So racially, he was different than him. Politically, he was different. You see that the eunuch was um, of the court of Candace, meaning from the very time he was young, he was probably raised in the royal household, trained to work in the administration. In fact, he was over the whole treasury. This guy was really important in Ethiopia. And so he had a political difference than, um, than Philip. He had a different national agenda. The agenda that the eunuch would have had in the court of Candace over the treasury of Ethiopia was vastly different than the agenda that Philip would have had for Jerusalem and Judea and the country in which he lived. Totally different agendas. 
Judea was a region that was being ruled by other nations, longing for a Messiah, physical Messiah, to come and deliver them from Roman oppression. Philip and his nationality would have been hoping for liberation in Judea. And Ethiopia didn't have that intention. They didn't have that desire for Judea. They didn't care about Judea. They had their own national agenda. You see, the gospel and our political interests are oftentimes we have to look for what we call a higher hope. Gospel and politics for so long in our culture have become so intertwined. Now, I believe that the gospel should shape how you engage with politics. And the gospel should have an impact, have the massive impact on how you develop your own political ideology. That's not what I'm arguing. But so much we have developed a national hope completely synonymous with our Christian hope. And it's good to have a national hope. It was good for Judea to long to not be under Roman power anymore. But whether that happened or not, the gospel has a hope that is independent of a national hope, that transcends a national hope. And you and I, whichever side you find yourself falling on the aisle, so to speak, liberal, conservative, progressive, um, you know, Democrat, Republican, whatever side you fall on that aisle, the gospel hope actually transcends both those differences. Regardless, just think about this in our history. Regardless if uh, George Washington or Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton were president, our country and people have had problems and will continue to have problems. And the gospel is the ultimate solution to that. So I would encourage all of us, I think it's right and good to engage in the political process with the spirit of Jesus Christ. But when election cycles come around, it should remind us to pin our hopes on the sovereign king who's to come, who's going to rule a world in which we will live where there'll be complete justice and no evil. It should remind us of that. And if there are those who disagree with us politically, the hope of the gospel should not be wrecked because of that. So this man was racially and politically different than Philip. This man was sexually different. Yes, sexually. Eunuchs were outcasts in this society. They were oftentimes, most often in this time, made eunuchs, which means castrated, at a very young age, so that this person would serve in the royal family without the desire to then raise his own children and create his own royal family, which basically we would castrate, they would castrate people so that they would not create competing families in the royal family. So they would bring a lot of eunuchs to work and, uh, from the time that they were young before they even really had a choice make them eunuchs and train them to work in the royal family. We are facing some of the same challenges in our culture today. There are intense, intense, heated, divided lines being drawn in our culture right now with regards to sexuality. And I want to point out this one fact, that there is no doubt that Scripture points to us, that God wants us to live a flourishing, joy-filled, transcendent, peace-filled life. And the scripture teaches us that following our instincts and our urges is not the way to a peace-filled, joy-filled life. It's not the way. And so scripture is very clear that practicing homosexuality, even though that might be the urge that we have, is not going to lead us to the life that God wants us to have. There's no doubt that scripture teaches that. But it's also important for you to know this, that being sexually attracted to the opposite gender is not a prerequisite of becoming a Christian. You, you might not be. 
That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you have to be attracted to the same, to the opposite gender to become a Christian. So we've got to make sure that we continue to teach what the Bible teaches about how to live a flourishing life, but not lay out for them prerequisites to becoming a Christian. You can become a Christian and not be attracted to the same gender or the opposite gender, but you can still learn from Scripture about how to pursue a flourishing life. I've seen this happen three times in my life so far. Uh, I grew up in a church where there was a, a lady that was a beautiful lady. She taught um, our Bible classes to us as kids. She was amazing in, in VBS. She could create skits and draw, like, like she could create scenery. It was a wonderful. She lived a full, beautiful, Christian-filled 58 years of life before cancer took her. And she was never married. She just wasn't uh, interested in marriage. She wasn't interested in pursuing someone of the opposite sex. Now, I don't know if she had attraction for the same gender or not, but she lived a full, robust, filled Christian life without, without pursuing the opposite sex. Just a few years ago, a kid I grew up with, um, going to church camp for 10 years, I grew up with him. He lives in Dallas, Texas now, called me out of the blue. been about four years since we talked, and he said, I need to talk to you. And, okay, that's great. And he flew into Columbus uh, four years ago, and we sat down to, to talk. And he said, I want to tell you about a struggle I've had um, for about the past six years. I've been I, I just it's always been brewing in me, but I've been attracted to the same gender. But I'm a Christian and I want to fight that urge. I want to I want to deal with that in the right way. And I've watched this man live faithfully to the gospel of Jesus Christ and pursue a joy filled life as a Christian. Although he doesn't experience attraction to the opposite gender, he lives a full Christian life. I think it's important for us to know that with regards to how we become a Christian. So this man, Philip and the eunuch, were different racially, politically, sexually, and even religiously they were different. You notice, did, did you read uh, when David was reading to us this text? He said this man traveled from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem to worship. Now, if you go back and look in Deuteronomy chapter 23 under the law of Moses, you'll find something kind of disheartening for this story. This eunuch traveled probably close to six or 700 miles at minimum, maybe 1,000 miles, to get to Jerusalem to worship. And you know when he arrived in Jerusalem and approached the temple, you know what probably happened? He wasn't allowed in. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 says eunuchs are not allowed to join the assembly of God's people. They weren't allowed to join in. He came to worship, and he was most likely denied access. He was not allowed to be a part of Philip's religious people. He wasn't allowed to be a part of that group originally. His physical condition excluded him from God's people under the law of Moses. And this can happen to us today. These unexpected people, whether it be the way they dress, um, maybe their body might be covered in tattoos or something like that, or maybe they're struggling with addictions, whatever kind of physical observations we can make that might think that they are excluded from God's people. This man was different racially, politically, sexually, religiously. Do you see this? What made him an unexpected or an outsider was from Philip's perspective, he was different in all these ways. And there are people in your life right now that are completely unexpected outsiders. That you take all of your metrics or characteristics and they're different in every case, right? Different race, different political party, um, maybe different in the way that they live their life and stuff. And these are the ones that, yes, even the gospel can reach. We've got to believe that. So the question then, number two, is 
how do we really find these unexpected people? Now, you might chuckle with me and say, well, just look outside, right? There's, <laughs> there's people everywhere that are different than me, and that's true. But how do we find the ones that are going to be converted? There are two things that have to come together in Philip's story and our story for the unexpected to be converted. Number one, the unexpected person has to be a seeker. There must be a seeker. You see, this eunuch was on his way and then on his way back from worshiping. And when he was on his way back, probably in Jerusalem, he purchased a portion of the scroll of Isaiah and he was reading scripture. All these circumstances, going to Jerusalem, probably being de denied access to worship, buying the scroll of Isaiah, were cultivating him to be ready to receive the gospel. Denied access to the temple, having scripture in front of him, all alone, sitting there thinking. They were all getting him ready. He was a seeker. And this was not a wasted trip. When he made it to Jerusalem and purchased that portion of Isaiah, this was not a wasted trip because the whole way back, this entire journey, he's reading probably about 10 to 12 chapters of Isaiah. Probably, uh, most likely, chapter for us, maybe like chapter 50 to chapter 60 or something like that. And most likely, he had chapter 56 in our modern Bible. And you know what Isaiah chapter 56 says in verses 4 and 5? Just listen. Listen to this text. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, I will, future tense, give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now just imagine being this eunuch never able to bear children who will carry his name, which was a massive thing of importance in, the first, in, in this time. Going all the way to Jerusalem, and at the door of the temple, most likely being told, hey, listen, you're not allowed in here. He goes out into the temple court, people selling all kinds of stuff, you know, he probably bought a sacrifice already, got a little bit of money left, probably had a lot of money. And he finds a merchant selling scrolls. He says, give me one. I don't know, what, what would you give a eunuch? And maybe that person, that merchant selling scrolls, knew something about Scripture. Maybe he was actually a good salesman or saleswoman. Maybe he was good at it. He said, a eunuch, ah, you need this portion of Isaiah. It's got a promise for you that's going to lift your spirit. And he gives him Isaiah, and he's reading Isaiah. And he gets to 56, and it says, to those eunuchs that faithfully keep my Sabbaths and do what please me, there's going to come a time where you're going to come into my house, inside my walls, and I'll give you a monument. I'll give you a name. I'm going to give you something that's better than even sons and daughters. Something eternal that'll be yours. Wow. This eunuch's being stirred up, isn't he? And when Philip shows up, he's not reading this section, but what section is he reading? It's in chapter 53. And it says that this... Now, now watch how closely... This section of scripture aligns with what probably happened to this eunuch's life. Probably at the age of 10 or 11, he was taken and castrated against his will to serve in the court where he would not have a family the rest of his life. His name will be cut off from the earth for the rest of his life, right? Listen to this text. Um, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears, he is silent. He opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, those that come after him, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. This scripture talking about Jesus is saying, this man is going to be taken silent mouth and be cut. And he won't have a generation where the world will remember his name. He won't. This suffering servant is being promised to us. And Philip shows up and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man responds to Philip. And the word is, when he said he responded, the word is the same word that you and I use for prayer. Meaning he desperately was pleading with Philip, saying, who is this man? That knows exactly what I know. That is experiencing what I, that experienced what I have experienced. Who is he? That was cut off. That has no generation. That has no connection. I've heard the promise, but who is this one suffering like I've suffered? It's important for us to realize this truth. Because while it may seem like some people are insiders and some people are outsiders, some people are expected conversions and some people are unexpected, there's no one, no one, whether you're raised religiously or not, whether you grew up in these pews or you didn't, there's no one who becomes a Christian that's not unexpected or an outsider. Even the most buttoned up ones of us in here, Jesus knows what it's like to, be, to deal with the parts that makes us feel like outsiders. This outsider, this unexpected one was a seeker and Jesus promised in Matthew 7 that those who seek will do what? They'll find. Those who seek will find. So if you're here today and you feel like one of these outsiders, you feel like one of the unexpected ones. You feel like, I don't really belong in the group. I don't really belong with the religion. I don't really belong with this race. I don't really belong because my politics or maybe my sexuality is struggling or maybe religiously I look different. I don't belong. If you're like that, here's what you've got to know. Choose not to numb that outside feeling with some distraction. Even to the worst, maybe like drugs or alcohol or busyness and job. Don't, don't numb your feeling of being an outsider. But don't beg for that feeling to go away. Like, please make me like one of you. Don't numb and don't beg. Seek Jesus Christ. Whatever thing makes you feel like an outsider. Not enough education. Jesus didn't go to school. Not a prestigious family background. Who knew Jesus' peasant family? Don't have an impressive career? Jesus was a worker with his hands, a carpenter. Don't have any money? You're broke and some other people have money? Jesus died without a thing to his name. Have you been unfairly judged by people who are worse than Jesus? Have you been cast off from society and left out? Jesus is completely the outsider. What I'm saying is Jesus knows exactly how you feel when you feel like an outsider. And every one of us, even those that have all the predispositions that look religious, have something about us that makes us an outsider. And even to the point where we're cast off, Jesus knows. He experienced it. So that you don't have to be an outsider anymore. Don't numb your outsiding feeling. Don't beg to have it go away. Seek Jesus and you'll find. So we've got to have a seeker if we're going to find these unexpected people. They've got to be a seeker. But you and I have to be servants. Have to be servants. We've got to have a seeker, but we've got to also have servants. This is vastly different than you agreeing with Jesus. 
This is vastly different than you just saying, I believe in the doctrines. I believe what Jesus taught was right. I believe in these particular teachings. I believe these doctrines. This is different than just agreeing with Jesus or believing in Jesus. A servant is much more. You and I must be servants. A servant is this. A person who is at the disposal of the master's will. And a person who stands at attention, ready to be commanded by the master to go. Which one are you? An agreeer with Jesus? A believer in Jesus? A champion of Jesus? A campaigner for Jesus? Or a servant? You see, there was no wisdom, insight, planning, or strategy of Philip's mind that would have made sense for him to go where he went to find this eunuch. Philip had just went to the city of Samaria. And if you were going to go try to evangelize the people, you typically want to go to a heavily populated area because you kind of cast the gospel net out, right? And you hope that out of the millions of people that are out there, you rein in a few people. But what does it say about where Philip went? It says that he went down to the road that was from Jerusalem to Gaza. And it says that it was a desert place all alone. You see, Philip was not there because of his planning or his wisdom. I believe Philip was led there by active, reflective, attentive prayer. And you and I, when we pray, have to be active, attentive, reflective, and ready. I believe Philip was praying something like this. God, where to and to whom should I go daily? You see, he had left his home. He was pushed out of his home. He was in Jerusalem. He was comfortable. Things were safe. And persecution drove him away from where he lived and where he was comfortable. And he's, now he's in the city and he's having success. But he's still praying, God, where should I go since I'm not at home anymore? And who should I go to? And it says in verse 26 that, that the angel of the Lord directed him to this street, this, this road that was deserted. And it says the spirit of the Lord led him to that chariot. You and I need to be people that are servants in our prayer, ready to go where God wants us to go. I'm going to encourage you day, day in and day out that God will bring you somebody unexpected. If you open up your prayer life saying, God, where do you want me to go? And who would you like me to go to? Who? He's going to bring some people to your life to share the gospel with. All right, lastly, let's do this. Who are the unexpected? They're the ones different than us. How do you find them? They have to be a seeker, but you have to be a servant. What do you do when you run into somebody unexpected? What do you do? This is where we learn from Philip. Number one, Philip asked a question. We ask questions. You notice Philip didn't answer questions that the eunuch wasn't asking. Philip walked up to the chariot. He didn't have like, you know, a canned presentation about Jesus. He didn't have like, a, hey, sir, I want to tell you something about Jesus. He said, do you understand what you're reading? He asked him about his understanding, his intellect, his heart, his mind. And he came there and he said, what, do you understand what you're reading? He discovered what was on the mind and the heart of the eunuch. And you and I need to be people. When we run into those that might be unexpected, who we wouldn't assume might be converted to Christ, be willing to ask questions. Over and over, the Bible is presenting the gospel as an answer to people's questions. Colossians 4 says that we need to be wise, redeeming the time, and our speech needs to be seasoned with salt 
so that we may know how to answer each one. Answer. That requires a question. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we need to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts to be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Meaning when we live with hope and excitement and joy, people are going to ask. And we've got to be willing to ask questions of them. So number two, what do we do when we meet unexpected people? Ask them questions. Where they're from, what they've gone through, what their background is, what they understand, what they're thinking about. And answer these questions with Jesus. Now this is vitally important you get this. Connecting their questions to Jesus is vital. You've got to do that. You can't listen to their questions and then say, oh, that's nice. Let me randomly tell you some historical facts about a guy that lived 2,000 years ago and not make the connection for them, not help them see. Disconnected facts are really difficult in converting people. So you and I must make connections with how Jesus answers their questions. And let me tell you, the way we do this is we always start with ourselves to learn how to do this. As I've said, week after week, I'm not going to let go of this idea, this thought with you, that Jesus has to be the solution to your problems, the answers to your questions, the salvation to your hurts and your fears and your difficulties. He's got to save you before you'll ever be able to help somebody else. What fears has he calmed? What hurts has he healed? What desires has he satisfied? What worries has he settled? Answer that que those questions with Jesus. When you understand that in yourself and you understand them people's needs, you'll be able to connect Jesus to their needs. You'll be able to do that. You've got to start with yourself. Just imagine for a moment the conversation that Philip was having while he rode in the chariot with the eunuch. I'm sure he started off with, listen, man, you've gone through serious pain and trauma. You were given to a role that maybe was difficult for you. Jesus knows that pain. He's experienced that kind of pain. All kinds of examples he could have told him about. I wonder if he talked about giving him an everlasting lineage, a family that he could belong to, where he could have spiritual sons and daughters. Uh, history shows us Irenaeus, who was a second century writer, said that this eunuch was the very missionary that spread the gospel to Ethiopia. He had children after children in the gospel because he brought the gospel to them, an eternal lineage that I'm sure Philip told him about. He told him about an everlasting, transformative love, this kind of love that this eunuch probably never thought he would have knowing that he couldn't marry and couldn't have children. He probably thought that kind of love was outside of him, beyond him, something he could never have. And he comes to him and he says, Jesus is the very spouse you've always wanted, the very love that you've always needed, and it's the very thing that will transform your life. It's better than any love this world can offer you. I bet Philip also talked about his rejection at the temple. I'm sure Philip affirmed that it hurt, that being rejected at the temple of God was traumatic and difficult. But I'm sure Philip very carefully, masterfully took that example of being rejected at the temple and told the eunuch this, that that rejection you experienced in the flesh is actually the rejection we all deserve before God someday. But you know what, eunuch? That rejection you experienced one time in the temple, you'll never have to experience eternally before God. Because there was one who took that rejection so we didn't have to be rejected. Who took that suffering for our sins so that all of us wouldn't have to experience that wrath of God. There's one who did that. 
And when you and I crawl into him, become one with him, join ourselves together with that one, we don't have to be rejected ever again. And at that moment, I'm guaranteeing, the eunuch said, how do I become one with him? Because I don't want to be rejected ever again. He said, well, listen, man, it's easy. Whenever we see water, you just go down into water and you die to your old self. And in that water, you, like a marriage, become one with Jesus. And when you come up, you've got a brand new life. You're a new creature. And they're riding along and they see water. And who stops the chariot? The eunuch. He says, hold on. Here's water. What's stopping me from being one with Jesus? And this unexpected one, look what happens. He could have scoffed at it, right? After Philip told him the gospel and told him, he could have scoffed at him. A lot of people do, and you're going to get scoffed at when you share the gospel with unexpected people. But this one was different. He wanted it, connected with it. Imagine the shock of Philip, right, when he told him to stop the chariot. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Imagine our shock when we finally believe what Jesus says, that the harvest is plentiful, but who's really few? Harvest is few or the labor is few? You tell me. Oh, you don't? Okay. What's few, the harvest or the laborers? Imagine our shock when we start converting unexpected people. And we stop having a lack of faith in ourselves because we can't reach people. We're not good at it. I'm not good at it. I get paid to do this. Imagine our shock when we start converting people because God in His power begins to bring people to us. And what happens to the eunuch is amazing. He comes up out of the water and he has an unshakable joy. And here's what's amazing about this story. Was he still a eunuch? Was he still Ethiopian? Did he still work for Candace? Right? None of his circumstances changed, did they? Except he was now connected to the one that would never leave him rejected, would always be the love he needed. And he had an unshakable joy that transcends circumstances. When you convert people, you might not change their circumstances. I'm sitting here this morning, I got a message from a kid addicted to drugs in Parkersburg, but he's going to be baptized today. Right now, you're joining a brother here in just a few moments. Awesome, right? He's going to struggle with addiction tomorrow. His circumstance is not going to change, but he's going to have an unshakable joy. That's what you'll get. If you don't have that, fix it right now. Let's stand and sing.